war. When he arrived at the other side in the region of guardian, oh, I messed it up, guardians, two demon-possessed men coming from the tomb met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. He said to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. That's Matthew 8, 28 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to ask Bobby to come up, and I'll pray really quickly, and he can get started. Lord, we thank you for this time together to study your word, even the passages that maybe seem a little out of the, off the wall and don't totally make sense to us. I pray for Bobby today. I pray that you would just give him a rest from not feeling well. And Lord, even if just for this next half hour, hour that he just feels well enough to deliver the message that you have laid upon his heart. And we just thank you again for the opportunity to worship together. Amen. I think we may have had a couple different uh, translations. So sorry if that was a little confusing, but we'll try to, that's like the littlest of what's gonna be confusing today, so. Um, I have to admit, I'm, I feel very weak today preaching. Um, you know, I spent a couple hours this morning throwing up in the bathroom. Um, and also just uh, not up to the task of of opening God's word, not up to the task of, um, of standing before you um, with the weight of my own sin, with the, the weight of God's grace. There's so many, um, I apologize, I'm going to be a little emotional, I think, through this, just maybe because I'm sick, but also, you know, I've talked to a lot of you about this topic over the last few weeks. Um, and I know there's a lot of questions. <clears throat> I know there's a lot of things that are confusing, a lot of need. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's a bit overwhelming. And so um, I'm going to jump in and I just ask for your prayers uh, as I do so that I would, um, I don't know, not, not say anything that's unhelpful because there's a lot out there that's wacky. There's a lot of stuff that's unhelpful. Um, but I think this is an important topic. I think we need to know what to do with this. You can't say that you believe in a Christ, the, the Christian religion and say that there's no room for the spiritual powers of darkness. It's no doubt part of the story. Um, we believe um, an ancient religion, not a modern one. And so some of these things are hard. They're unnatural for us. C.S. Lewis, in the preface to his uh, infamous Screwtape Letters, says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
Now, I presume that out of those two options, most of us probably would land um, more towards the former than the latter. While maybe a few of us here would claim that we don't believe devils do exist functionally, I would guess that most of us act as though they do not exist, or at least we don't know what to do about them. Um, You know, I surveyed 40 or 50 or 60 of our members, and the large majority of us um, says that the existence of demons or Satan doesn't impact us in any way whatsoever, or at least any appreciable way. The reasons for this could be many. I think most of us just don't really know what to do with them. Um, Some of us probably believe that uh, there's nothing to do with them since we're Christians and Jesus defeated them. Um, I think some fear that if we talk about it or if we bring it up, it would be uncomfortable or maybe we'd be inviting some sort of spiritual attack or putting a bullseye on our backs. And while there's probably some degree where all of those positions act as safeguards against that unhealthy interest that C.S. Lewis warns us about. I would argue that to live without regular thoughts about the spiritual realm um, is in its own sense dangerous. Not only is it dangerous because it's a reality that is out there, um, I think that it shortchanges us in our spiritual walk It limits the gospel in its true cosmic and glorious scope. And that's what I want you to see today uh, as we we look at this sort of odd puzzle of a text. There's something bigger going on behind the scenes that I want to draw our attention to. Now, um, there will be a lot of I don't knows in this sermon. Uh, If I'm being honest, the more that I've studied, the more I don't knows kept popping up the less confident I became about a lot of specifics. But there are a few things that sort of, I hope, rise to the top that will provide encouragement for you today and some guidance. So here's my approach. Um, The first thing I want to do from the first half is I want to just give us some context. Like, what does the Bible say about this topic in a general sense? Like, how should we think about this? Um, And then... Secondly, I want to look at the storyline of this war between God and the spiritual forces of evil. See, this is a storyline from the beginning of the, to the end of the Bible. And so I just want to fa- trace that a little bit. And then we're going to, once we've sort of found that base, baseline, um, take a look at today's passage and see what we can glean from it and what it actually means for us today. So what does the Bible have to say about the spiritual dimension? Or how does it work? To understand this is no easy task for modern, western, skeptical millennials or whatever generation you are, we're all much closer to each other than we are to ancient Near East um, Israelites. I I should clarify too, this is going to be a very introductory approach, this part. But the first thing I want to point out is that the spiritual dimension is part of the actual created universe. Some people probably think about the spiritual dimension as some other, I don't know, this other thing that maybe exists somewhere in some weird floaty thing. And, And what I want you to see is when God created the heavens and the earth, 
He created all of it. All who exist, all beings, all dimensions exist within God's actual creation. I think it is helpful to think of spiritual beings operating in the actual universe and in some sense bound by their own set of physical laws. It's easy for a lot of us to uh, be skeptical and... One of the things I wanted to kind of point out for even modern thinkers, this idea of there being multiple dimensions goes right through to the most um, modern physics that we have now. You know, string theory posits somewhere around 11 dimensions would exist. Now, whether that's true is kind of irrelevant. This idea of there being another dimension is certainly the biblical story, but there's no reason that we have scientifically to say, this couldn't be, this is only the miraculous. I just don't think that's the right way to think about this. The angels, demons, are like God, are not outside of time. They're not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. In fact, we see some stories where they actually have to sort of travel about the world. Um, now, the way it all works is not knowable to us. We don't have the details about how their society works or how it all fits together, and so we have to be silent where the Bible's silent. But let me give you a quick example of this, uh, sort of a strange story. A lot of the stories in the Old Testament about this are strange. That's one of the hard parts about this. Um, But this is just a great story that always makes me chuckle a little bit. In Daniel 10, um, we just see the, the sort of finiteness of the angels. So we have an angel who's sent to Daniel to provide some assistance, but he shows up a little bit late, and here's what he says. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, this is referring to the archangel Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now, I'm not going to break all that down. Scholars are pretty much in agreement that this, this prince of Persia is some sort of demonic power, and he essentially gets hung up for like three weeks. He's like, sorry, I was late. I was duking it out with a demon. And that's the, it's kind of a hilarious story, but there's something real, something that grounds us a little bit um, as we think about these ideas that they're not so abstract. Now, that may raise more questions for you, and I don't want to go too deep into that, but I just wanted to give you that little... Um, sort of that piece of the puzzle. And us as humans, we were made as people who are both of the physical dimension, no doubt, but who were made also to know and see the spiritual dimension. We all have something about us that is beyond this world, and it is because we were made to know God, to walk with God. Our Our inability to see God, to see the spirits, is, in fact, I believe, part of our curse, part of our fall, our blindness. Now, I do want to give just some definitions here. So you may have some questions about, like, okay, so what are all these beings involved? We have, you know, there's this Satan figure that we've heard about, there's demons, now you're saying there's princes, angels, there's actually quite a bit more. What are they? What are all these spiritual creatures? Well, Even though, unfortunately, the scriptures don't give us a real breakdown of how it all works, 
We know from Scripture that all spiritual beings were created without sin. They were created to worship God and to serve Him, to help run things on earth. At some point or points in history, some of these spiritual beings sinned, and they were cast away from the presence of God. They were no longer His messengers. The word angel is just messenger. But... They worked as enemies of God. I wish I knew how it went down. There are some obscure passages that some people say, well, this is how this went down. Uh, They're controversial. I don't know that I totally buy any of it in terms of the details. The, The Bible now, it does use a lot of different words to describe these spiritual beings. It uses the phrase Elohim, which is just the word for God or gods. Um, He uses the term prince or princes, messengers, hosts, heavenly hosts, demons, adversary, authorities, rulers, powers. All of these are phrases referring to spiritual powers in the earth. There's a lot. Um, And so what I want us to see a little bit is like how are the ancient Israelites thinking about this topic? What are the biblical authors, like what's their worldview that they're inhabiting as they're talking about these items? One of the things is the world that they inhabit in their mind is absolutely teeming with spiritual beings, with gods, with spirits. That is the world of ancient Israel. Um, One of my favorite stories is from 2 Kings, you may know this story, where Elisha asks God to give his servant eyes to see the spiritual realm as he sees it. So here's what it says. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, there's a lot we could say about that. There's a lot of encouragement from that text that we could draw. But one of the things that always just stands out to me is just the awesomeness of that scene. An army surrounding Elisha, and and rightly so, the young man is like, oh, we're screwed. Like, we're, we're probably going to die. And Elisha says, you don't see what I see. Behind, behind sort of the enemy lines is the truer reality that God's armies, the angels of heaven, they look out for his people. They're doing war. There is no laying down and allowing God's people to be trampled. No, God has always looked out for his people. He has always sent his angels to help and assist. I know this is weird for us because we just don't think of the world that way. Um, I think it's awesome. I prefer to think of the world this way. You know, because the world is, the physical world is so glorious and so powerful and so beautiful and yet it's not all there is. There's more to, to glory and to remark, to, to, to be blown away by. 
Now, even still, you may find this a doubt that you have. And I just want to point out that your skepticism about the spiritual world, if, and to some degree we all like have that, right? That's just the world we live in. We're skeptical about this stuff. I just want to say that is an extraordinarily rare and modern feeling. It is virtually universal throughout human history, Judaism all around the world, it is just assumed and known that the spiritual world is real, that it exists. And I, I just, I'm not really willing to just look at all humans across all time and say the answer is, well, they just didn't know any better. Like, sure, there are things about science that they didn't know. They didn't have the scientific method, of course. There are things we don't know, and our descendants will prove that, no doubt. I think it fits with what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we look back and just think everybody was stupid. We have millions of people throughout history saying, hey, we are engaging and experiencing oppression, and I, I just don't think it's all, we're supposed to think of that as, yeah, nothing was really happened, it was all in their minds. In fact, if there are certain places in the world now where if you were to go and say, yeah, there's no such thing as demons, they would be like, I literally like, have experienced them multiple times. What are you talking about? Right? It would be offensive to certain people because they live in that reality. And it's always been that way. Now, again, I don't want to say that we have not misjudged things. We all misjudge things all the time. And I'm not saying history had it all perfect. Of course they didn't. God's word is revealed more and more to us. We're going to talk about that um, in a moment and how to think about uh, these things in a modern context. Okay, so what's the main point I want you to get from this sort of context? The Bible tends to associate spiritual forces with some sort of delegated authority over earthly kingdoms. That's how it works. And there's multiple places I can draw your attention to that show that. Um, the one we just read in Daniel, he refers to him as the prince of Persia, right? That is, the idea is this spiritual power was in some sense associated with or ruling or influencing the Persians. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses puts it this way. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion and his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. The Lord's portion is his people. So it's a little bit of a confusing text, but what he's saying is that according to the number of whatever spiritual beings or the sons of God are that he gave them some degree of authority or some degree of a task to serve him in these nations, to help. But he says that God would be the only one who would be over Israel, that, that, that Israel would be his chosen heritage. In other words, he's delegating his rulership to spiritual beings.
Now, this is not... This is not something that's totally unfamiliar to the New Testament, and hopefully it's not totally unfamiliar to you as a concept of how God likes to work. Um, in fact, look at how Paul refers to spiritual powers. Listen to the words that he describes them with in Ephesians 6. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Notice those words, authority, rulers, powers, right? He's saying this idea of, it's, the biblical picture is not so much individual relationships with like the spiritual realm, even though we do see that in our text today, and that certainly is part of the story. But there's something else behind the scenes that we see in scripture, behind the, some of the evil that we've seen throughout history, we can say with confidence that is not totally and purely just human inclination. Behind things like slavery, we have certainly human evil, no doubt. And and in no sense does this take away responsibility. Hopefully that'll be clear as we move on. But that there's more to the story. That there is great evil, that there is an army against the way of the king at work. Now, That'll all make sense, I think, why I'm talking about that picture in a second. Before I sort of jump into our passage, I just want to explain for a moment or answer a couple questions that I've heard a lot of you had. So the first one is, hey, how can we identify if this is like something is demonic activity or, or a demon? Uh, this is mostly an I don't know answer. Um, but I would say that there are some people who have the spiritual gift of discernment. Those are important people. We should not doubt them or shame them, but encourage them and let them serve us. I do think at times the Spirit does give us discernment. At times I feel I don't have the discernment. So that's something we can pray for. We can ask God for wisdom and discernment in those, um, in those situations where maybe we think we're encountering some sort of evil. But ultimately... I would just encourage you that whether or not the evil is human, of of human nature, or of spiritual nature, or somewhere in between, the answer is still the same. We still have one king who has defeated sin. We still have one God who who is over all one answer. And so we don't always know, but we always know where to go. Now, Many of you probably have the question of, well, where's the line between like, natural causes for sickness and demonic causes for sickness? That should, certainly comes up a lot in the New Testament. How can we tell? How do we know if I'm sick because of spiritual reasons or natural reasons? This is also an I don't know. I think the Lord could give us discernment in some, some of these case, cases. I don't see the need to be overly skeptical one way or the other. Um, But it is important to note that in the New Testament, the majority of the healings of sick people are not demonic um, oppressions. It's just healing people who are blind or who have some sort of ailment. And so that indicates that certainly not all ailments are demonic. Um, 
I do think that we, there's no way to look at these stories in the New Testament and say, well, that was just an old way of thinking about this topic because they didn't know about you know, mental health issues. And certainly it's true that there's probably misunderstandings, well, certainly have been misunderstandings of mental health and illness. But then we see Jesus say to a demon, go, and a person be healed. What do you do with that? Again, either way, the answer is the same. Go to a doctor and pray, right? Now, I do want to take a quick pause here to say something because this is such a difficult topic that's tripped so many people up about healthcare and about healthcare workers. I think it's important to understand that all healthcare, mental healthcare, this is not just this thing where we say, you know, I've heard people say, it's God's grace, you know, that he helped us figure this out because we surely couldn't figure it out before. What I want you to understand is that the, the work of healthcare, those who are helping the sick, are doing God's work. He literally gave the world grace. Even for the demonic oppressed, I believe that the work of nurses and doctors and psychologists are fighting back against the, what, the, what the demonic powers have tried to do. I think there's no reason to separate those two. Um, I consider it no less of a miracle what technology has brought us in the medical field. I think we can look at all that and just marvel at God's love, at his hatred for sickness, at his commitment to ultimate healing. Modern medicine did not arrive out of chance, but by the grace of God to the world. In a sense, modern medicine is spiritual warfare, I believe. Now, is it always that? No, I don't think so. But I just wanted to make that point because I, I don't think there's anything to be tripped up here but to marvel and to give thanks to God for the means he has given us. And certainly, yes, pray. Pray for people. People are healed in miraculous ways all the time. We should. Okay, there's a few more questions I'm going to skip because I want to move on to the main point here. So, here's a picture. That's the picture of sort of this thing that's happening in the background. All of it is part of a storyline, a storyline that starts in Genesis. In Genesis 3, we have this picture of God judging a serpent. Here's what it says in Genesis 3. So, Adam and Eve are tempted, they sin. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This moment, this story, is so crucial to understand what, the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament of what's happening. This picture, this theme, or this motif comes up over and over and over again. It is this picture of what is happening, what is happening behind the scenes is this story. 
the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This judgment, of course, foreshadows an ultimate battle between a specific seed of the woman and the serpent. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel, God's seed, David, the kings, at war with what? With their own sin, at war with the desire for power, at war against, uh, against competing armies, at war against Satan. Behind it all is a battle that is largely unseen, but this is what was promised. This is what was said was going to happen when Adam and Eve in the garden gave in to the serpent's temptation. They chose to trust what the way of the serpent rather than God, that his way would be satisfying, that his way is better. They thought, maybe God is withholding something from us, isn't he? And so they chose that way. And so this gives us this really interesting picture of a serpent being stepped on while biting the heel of the person stepping. We'll come back to that in a moment. But what I want you to understand is this picture that's happening is is an anti-Yahweh, an anti-his-people movement. That's the war that's happening. It's a war between the seed and the serpent. And so what we can do is when we see the signs of the serpent... What I mean, again, and I, I don't mean like there's literally one snake going, like this is a metaphor, right, of something that's happening behind the scenes, right? Behind all this, what we see, or behind when we see peoples being oppressed, when we see people worshiping false idols, when we see people taking advantage of the poor, when we see war against neighbors, we're seeing the way of the serpent, the consequences of the serpent, When we see hatred and division, we're seeing the the way of the serpent waged war against the way of Yahweh. And that's where we show up in our text today, in the middle of a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Jesus shows up on the scene, and these men are oppressed by literally like thousands of demons. It's wild. Now, we don't know their story outside of this. We don't know how or why this happened. We know that we're in Gentile territory here. If they have a herd of pigs, that's not going to happen in, um, in Jewish culture. Pigs are considered unclean animals. And here's what happens. Jesus shows up after calming the storm on the seas, and we read, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So what stands out to me so powerfully about this moment is they immediately recognize Jesus' authority. You see, These demons knew that something was coming at some point. 
They say, hey, I, we know at some point there's a judgment. They know their end. They're like, but is, is, this, is this it? Are you coming to, to judge us now? Is it this guy? And notice that they know who they're seeing. And it's, at, and it's purposefully in contrast to what we saw last week where the disciples, they see Jesus calm the storm and they say, who is this guy? What kind of guy is this? And the demons are like, let me tell you, he's the son of God, and we are scared. They knew. They saw. They didn't need him to tell because, again, they see with their spiritual eyes the son of God walking up to them, and they say, oh, man, this is not going to go well for us. So what's happening now the seed of the woman has begun his offensive. He's showing what this is going to be like, how this is going to go down. And it starts in such extraordinary way here. You know, I, I'm certain there's never been a more fantastic exorcism than this scene of these two guys hanging out by tombs, just scaring people, completely overwhelmed, devastated. I don't know if they probably, you know, their families probably are just torn up about this, terrifying. And then, you know, these demons call themselves legion, meaning many. Um, and then Jesus says, go. And then 2,000 pigs go running into the ocean. It is an incredible, wild story to consider. But what's happening here is, with, in, in, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is stating his authority. They knew it, and he knew it, and he demonstrated that authority to these spiritual beings. These spiritual beings who for thousands of years have mostly run amok in the world, who have tortured and oppressed people for thousands of years. And now the time comes where things are changing Things aren't going to stay this way. Now, there are some puzzles here, like, why did the demons want to go into a herd of, a, in the herd of pigs? I have no idea. I've heard multiple explanations. I don't know. But the important thing is, A, the extraordinary nature and proof of what just happened. Like, this was no, like, yeah, well, I think maybe he cast out a demon. Like, this was awesome. This was breathtaking. This leaves no doubt as to who is in control. But let's trace this line a little bit further. You see, because this is really all we get here, but of course we know the story doesn't end with Jesus casting out these demons. Jesus delivers the crushing blow to Satan's head, not by casting out demons, but by becoming the curse. It was through his own death that he would remove the power of the curse. What happened in that garden so long ago would come to fruition as the seed of the woman laid down his life. With no sin of his own, 
for our guilt, for our sin. Though we deserve death, he tasted death. That we would be able to conquer death. Paul says that he disarms the rulers and authority when he does this. He takes away their power. Satan is called the accuser. And what accusation does he have against us when Christ has paid all of our sin? He has nothing he can say. Because everything he would say about me is absolutely true. There's nothing you can say about my sin that is not worse than what you're actually saying. You may say, you know, Bobby, you're a real jerk. I'm like way more than you realize. But the way this, this works, the beauty of this Christian story is that Jesus gives us his record of righteousness. And so as hard as it is to believe every single day, for those in Christ, God sees you as though you were as perfect as Jesus. He's given you his righteousness, a gift. Satan and his minions have nothing they could do to take that away. There's nothing they can say to make, to make that sting any worse than it already does. The more you remind a Christian who knows the gospel of his sin, the more he's reminded of the grace of God. Now, that's where we usually end the story, right? Somewhere about our forgiveness. And listen, that is the good news, but it's only part of the, the story. And this is where I want us to see this whole picture of authority because I think the way that we've talked about the gospel, we've, we've just cut it short a little bit. We've missed the cosmic story that's happening. You see, what happens when Christ goes into the grave and then comes up out of the grave, and then he goes and sits at the right hand of the Father. What he's doing is declaring his authority. He's saying, I'm taking back all authority in heaven. All authority on the earth is mine now. Too long have people lived under oppression. Too long has the world not known the gentleness of the king. And so God gives all authority to Jesus, and that's what's happening in the gospel. He establishes his kingdom on the earth, and now all authority that he has is given to spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And guess who's, who he gives that authority to? You and me. Not on our own, right? Not that we have any awesomeness to us. He just says, I have a job, and the way that I'm going to stomp the serpent is through the same doofuses that he deceived in the first place. Authority, forgiveness, a message of grace, and that's going to change the world. This whole part of the Bible you could be understood as Jesus dunking on demons. It's just awesome. Just constantly showing what he is doing, that it's his authority. You see, the demons, they wanted to be worshipped. That is behind probably most false gods and false worship. And Jesus says, no, that's only for the one true God deserving of worship. They missed their initial aim. 
And so now he says, guess what? The kingdom's here and the gates of hell have no power to stop this movement, this movement of gospel, this movement of love, this movement of forgiveness. You see, the gospel's not merely about forgiveness. The gospel is about a king on the move. The gospel is about a kingdom taking over the earth. And listen, it's going to happen in full. Right now, we're in the middle of it. It's a, we're in the middle of a war that's been won for us. So what does this mean for us today? Like, How should we think of this? What should we do with this? Well, let's go back to those townsfolk who heard this news about Jesus. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So give these guys a little bit of a break. I mean, these guys are probably devastated. Like, their entire flock, their livelihood, they probably are going to be, like, not, the, the town's probably not going to be real happy with them. That's a lot of their food, a lot of their economic growth. But yet, they just saw something that absolutely blew their mind. And so they go and they say, you, guys, I, you got to come see this. 2,000 pigs just ran it. They, they committed pig suicide. And then and this guy just told them to leave. Just, the guys who had demons, you got to come see. And so they come see. And how perplexing, how surprising is it that the liberator has showed up. And they reject him. They beg him to leave. Is it really that surprising, though? Did not their father, Adam, choose the same? His own way? He wanted his own, he didn't want his life to be directed and guided by the wisdom of God, but he wanted to choose what would be good for him. He wanted the decision about what was wise, about, about what would be for his best. And is this not the same choice Cain was faced with? His anger filled his heart and sin crouched at the door like a serpent. And he chose murder rather than trusting God? And is this not the question that all of us have been faced with throughout history? Will we trust the wisdom of God? Will we follow him or will we choose to live for our own comforts? We don't want Jesus to disturb our lives too much, to, to demand too much. You see, the townsfolk, they're just doing what most of us have done our whole lives, I'll maybe take some Jesus, but you know, I, I need to make sure my 401k gets to this certain amount. That's, that's priority number one. I need to make sure I have at least uh, four hours a day for social media. I don't want that to be the case, but that's what the screen time tells me it is. 
We don't want the way of the king. We so often choose the way of the serpent. And listen, it's subtle. Most of you probably aren't going around murdering your brother. But we turn a blind eye to murder children. But we just say, well, yeah, sweatshops, I still need the cheap clothes, right? We just live sort of accepting the evil in our world without pushing against it, without being willing to follow the way of Jesus, of the King. And listen, this way that he has given to us, this way that Jesus has shown us, it is the way of life. It is the way for your joy, So will we choose comfort or will we choose Jesus as our portion? You see, I'm convinced that the reason most of us don't experience spiritual spiritual oppression is because honestly, most of us aren't much of a threat. We're content with our scrolling, making money, and having fun, which is all, obviously those are all good things. But I don't want us to fear the demonic powers. I don't want us to fear Satan because Christ has entirely won the victory. You have nothing to fear. There's nothing he can do to you. Sure, we need to put on our armor. Paul says that, hey, you know, make sure you're not just going out there without prayer, without community, without time in his word. But he's, not, he's also saying, don't just go hide in your room. We've been given a mission to take the, key, the way of the king to the ends of the earth. And so we've been called to war. It's not war against other people, Paul tells us. It's war against the way of the serpent. And so what I mean is that if you want to build God's kingdom... If you want to be a part of his battle, it's this simple. Love people. Take care of the needy. Tell the world about Jesus, what he's done. That's the way his kingdom grows, not through the sword. You have all of his authority. You have nothing to worry about. And so, stand up against the demonic structures and systems that we see in the world. How do you know anything that is against Yahweh and his way? What does he love? He says, take care of the immigrant, of the poor, of the oppressed. And so, do you want to know where you see systems of demonic power? Anywhere where those things are ignored. Anywhere where those things are moved forward in the world. Governments or movements that disparage the needy are demonic. Now you would say, are you getting political here? What? This is biblical. I'm just talking about biblical Christianity. I'm sorry if it doesn't line up with your political party exactly. It shouldn't. The story of the Bible, the kingdom is one of love, and as Christians, we are part of his kingdom first. So I'll end it with this. God has liberated you, church. One day, 
he's going to cast all spiritual darkness into the fiery pit. He's forgiven your sins. He's washed you. He's given you armor. He's given you a promise that he's going to just stand right next to you the whole time. He's given you a spirit so that nothing could possess you but the spirit of God. He's given you words. He's given you a heart that's changed. And so let me just say, let's all out go here. Let's, let's follow him. Let's trust him together. Let's stop worrying about our shortcomings and our sins. Let's stop worrying that we may not say the right words. Let's just love people. Let's fight hard for that. Because when we love people, we're dunking on demons. Let's pray. God, thanks for your words today. I know that um, some of these things are hard and confusing. Um, I just ask for help, that you would help us to be people who, who see your authority and worship you. Help us to be a church that is not hiding in our rooms, but is a city, uh, is a city on a hill, a light. Lord, I pray for all the missionaries that we've sent out, Lord, that you would encourage them now for the, the work that you've called them to. And I pray for help that you would that you'd give us all strength to walk not in the way of the serpent, but in the way of your son. Amen.